Hey everybody, it's Avi here. Uh, before starting this episode, I wanted to provide you with a little bit of context. You might notice that Sajid is not on episode 11 of Eight or a Better. That's because he's been on a 17-day pilgrimage to Mecca. He's been writing about it, meeting tons of interesting people, and having what sounds like a life-changing and impacting experience. So we're really happy for Sajid. Uh, we're glad he is back. Uh, but while he was away, we recorded an episode uh, with our friend Kristen Carter. Kristen is a criminal defense attorney. She is badass. Uh, she handles the most serious cases. She has a great deal of wisdom about the criminal justice system, about trial practice. And uh, we both really look up to Kristen. So we were so glad that she agreed to come on and share her views with the Ader Nation. So we don't really do an opening and a deep dive, but we do lightning round of a bunch of subjects, and we hope you find it interesting. Uh, we're so glad that Kristen was able to join us, and we hope you enjoy it. For the uh, people who come to Ader and a better for Sajid Khan, stay with us. It's still an interesting episode, and have no fear. Sajid will return soon. So for the Khanomaniacs, uh, he's coming back. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening to Ader and a better, and uh, let's get it started. This is Ader and a Better. I'm Avi Singh. On this week's episode, I'm joined by my friend, Kristen Carter. Hi, Avi. We are going to talk about two kind of criminal adjacent issues connected to the Charlottesville protests, specifically the phenomenon of internet sleuthing and the ACLU's decision about whether to provide free representation to armed hate groups. We're going to talk about jury selection uh, with Martin Shkreli as our kind of subject. And then we're going to talk about uh, the pardon of Joe Arpaio. Uh, Joe Arpaio, you're not a fan of the pardon, I, it seems like. No. And we're going to get into it. So um, I only know one person who is. Oh, <laughs> Joe Arpaio. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about. Oh, and then we're going to talk about Taylor Swift. Yay! All right. So why don't we get it started with this Charlottesville? So everybody has viewed what happened in Charlottesville, the protests, the neo-Nazis. The Vice documentary. The Vice documentary. That's a must-watch 25-minute kind of sampling of people who showed up at that rally and what they were about. When it hit its kind of most horrific moment, there was people fighting in the streets. A woman was killed in the street for being at a counter-protest. So people start going on Facebook. They start going on Twitter. And they start looking through still images and identifying people who were potential protesters and uh, then people who were actually identified as potential criminals. Yes, and they even started sites like Yes, You're a Racist and at Mask Off. There's a restaurant in Santa Cruz called Omey, and they're a very popular uh, place on the west side, and their red oil dumplings are delicious. I hadn't been there for you know, about six months, but... Uh, then I got this notice on Facebook that the owner of that restaurant contributed money to David Duke's most recent senatorial campaign. Not like in the 90s. He's no. not a Duke fan from the 90s. <laughs> not that that would excuse anything. This owner contributed about $500 to his campaign, and that became uh, known. People started protesting the restaurant, and now it's closed. It, it closed? The restaurant yeah. closed? Yes, it did. And the problem with this guy is he first started off by saying, oh, it's this political correctness uh, gone, gone amok. But then he said, I like to celebrate my white European heritage. And he basically doubled down on his, uh, his views. And I just decided I don't want to be a patron of his restaurant. And most of the people in Santa Cruz agreed. Yeah, I think it starts like, oh, this is just a big misunderstanding to, oh, this is just political correctness run amok and the mob is out, to, oh, well, you know, uh, there's a white genocide going on, <laughs> to, you know, it's kind of the evolution to, oh, your business doesn't operate. I mean, some uh, one guy uh, was identified as a protester. He wound up losing his job at the hot dog place. Top dog in Berkeley. I've been there. My point of view is that in some ways it's a safety concern. It's a public safety issue. If your child is being taught by a teacher who has these views or you're a person of color trying to get a loan in a bank and the bank teller has these views or that person is a district attorney or a judge. Or your defense attorney. 
or a defense attorney. Don't you think that you have the right to know? And those people learning their views may explain some things and keep you safe. Yeah, it's it's good information to have. If you're um, that guy, Chris, Kent, uh, the, the guy who's featured in the Vice documentary, I mean, he went right, right in front of the Cantwell. camera. Right, Chris Cantwell. Like, if you, they, he was kind of publicly removed from a dating website. But it's uh, the website, I think it was OkCupid, they found out that he was, he was on the website, and then they took him off. And it'd be you think he'd be on a different dating website than OkCupid? I, I, yeah. I mean, like, like what would be? Like, I don't you know. know. I like used to where, think where maybe farmers people only. Oh, but no, no they're, no, they're actually so. pretty cool. Yeah, I think they're cool. I, I, I mean, I they can imagine they're had, in a vegetable gardens and farmersonly.com actually had an ad with a black woman who was looking for a date, and I was, I was impressed. That, yeah, they, they surprised you. <laughs> anyway, so there's, there's the. Kind of the first issue is identifying people who are at the, these protests, yeah. And there, and also, I mean, they're going to be the same for people identifying people who are involved in crime. I think the dangerous thing, from my perspective, is when you identify somebody and you're saying this person committed a criminal offense. It's just I feel nervous about people going on the internet and saying this person's committed a crime, and I think that it's fine to identify them as being involved in some event. But the then taking that event and concluding a crime makes me feel a little concerned. Uh, there's also this concern about contaminated eyewitness identification. So if you're in, at the rally, right, and somebody b- hits you over the head with some stick or whatever, and then the person who's identified as the guy who hits people with the stick in the head, right, at your rally, is his face is then put all over the Internet there is some concern that your process of identifying who's the one who hit me isn't going to be a product of your memory, but a product of something that's been suggested to you. And it's just hard to, con- I don't know how we deal with this problem of contamination in the world that we live in now. Yeah, don't we do that every time we see a mugshot on the news? I Yeah, I think so. But it's I think, I think it's different from like a mugshot on local news to you know, everybody's phone lighting up with this is the person. You know, I think that it's different. Maybe it's just different in scale that, you know, when you look at your phone, you can see, oh, this is the guy. Oh, that's the guy, right? Like sometimes it's pretty straightforward because the person then on Facebook is proclaiming that they just went and beat up a bunch of people or whatever. But there are hard cases like the example in Boston of after the Boston Marathon bombing, the wrong person being identified. I mean, luckily he was, he was kind of exonerated close to real right. time but there's a real danger of just culling through photos comparing them to people who look similar on facebook or twitter and then saying this is the person well it's something we should be aware of but i don't know what the what the answer is i mean maybe it's just being aware of it as a problem i i think that as defense attorneys if we have a case where somebody's uh, accused or identified publicly and their photo is all over you know, all over the internet, if it's a really high profile case, then we, it would be really important for us to think critically or, you know, really scrutinize the quality or reliability of the identification because of, you know, everybody, I mean, you would want to know, did this person look on Facebook, the person who's doing the eyewitness identification, when they say how confident they are, even though that doesn't really mean anything, is that connected to some internet research that they did prior to participating in the identification. And I think that, you know, the, the, sh- the shitty thing, I mean, the, you know, I'm saying that this is a bad thing, but the shitty thing in Charlotte was, Charlottesville rather, was the police officers weren't arresting people or stopping them from committing, you know, widespread violence. So, like, what's the solution for somebody if you're watching all these people get harmed and you want to, you can't, I can't, you know, it's not good enough for me to say don't do it when the police are standing by while people are shooting guns or hitting people with sticks or threatening people or calling people, you know, kind of using criminal threats or whatever. Right. I mean, people on the Internet have solved all sorts of crimes. And you uh, you open the paper and you see uh, people recognized uh, this missing girl or they saw someone in the company of someone else. I mean, it can be obviously quite helpful to law enforcement and, and helpful to identifying uh, people have committed crimes, but there, there clearly are, uh, you know, pitfalls. For instance, in London, there was the uh, big case of this uh, 
jogger who pushed a woman into the path of an oncoming bus. And yeah. sh this was uh, shown on CCTV. The police uh, arrested an individual who looked like that individual, and it, I think it was based on um, people coming out and saying, that looks like this guy. And it was an American businessman. And the woman who got pushed in, the, in front of the bus identified him as the person who did this crime. Well, it turns out that that businessman was not in London at the time. He wasn't even in the country when this happened. So I think there is a chance of, of people being, uh, witnesses being uh, poisoned by their identification, seeing a photograph. And it seems like one of the biggest, or it, I think it's a fact that one of the one of the largest contributors to wrongful conviction is a bad eyewitness ID. Misidentification. And that's the one that people feel the most righteous about, you know? When they make it? Or what do you, how do you mean? When it's exposed. If someone spends uh, 25 years in prison and they're the wrong guy, I mean, that's horrendous. And it's because of misidentification. Not because you spent 25 years in prison because of some other... The reason. attorney was asleep during the trial <laughs> or something, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, well, the thing about the eyewitness ID is if, if it's the wrong person, then the right person has... You know, it's, it's the double harm, right? right? It's the harm to the law and order folks who didn't get the right culprit, uh, you know, as if they, it's something that they care about. And then the harm to the individual who's held, the harm to the victim of kind of being sold a false bill of goods and participating, participating then in the injustice. I mean, it's like there's there's all kinds of things that are awful about it. You know, more than, I mean, I see what you're meaning in terms of the ranking in the, Mount, in the Mount Rushmore right. of, of injustice and wrongful conviction, false ideas like, it's like George Washington. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's hope internet sleuthing continues, but people are careful and really make an effort not to uh, identify the wrong person. Yeah, I think if you just think about it and talk, you know, just think through what potential consequences are, you know, that, that might be all we and can do. And if you're falsely identified as a racist, do something to prove them wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One guy was identified and he says, that's not me. The tattoos don't line up. And then somebody's like, there aren't any tattoos. What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, all right. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and if and if, you know what, if you're going to go to one of these protests, don't wear a hood. You know, if you have the courage, you know, uh, if you think that you're right about things and you want to have your view, have your view. Right. Right. Let's have a big public argument and uh, in the marketplace of ideas, see which ideas are winning. Part of this Charlottesville protest that we wanted to talk about was the struggle that the ACLU is having. Uh, yes. Kristen, you want to set this up? Well, okay. This is how I feel. I understand that the ACLU has a mission, and I've always appreciated that. And the ACLU's mission is to be a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization whose stated mission is to defend and preserve the individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in this country by the Constitution and laws of the United States. Okay. Who could argue with that? Nobody. I think that's fantastic. I have contributed to the ACLU. I have, I don't know if I'm, I'm not a current member, but I have been in the past. But I think they got this one wrong. So the uh, Virginia chapter of the ACLU uh, represented uh, the alt-right groups. Unite the Right. Unite the Right. Unite the Right was going to have this rally in Charlottesville and downtown. The city or the government said you have to do it at a park that was uh, in the vicinity but not this concentrated area. The ACLU represented the Unite the Right group and successfully won. Yes. Uh, meaning that the protest was able to occur in the uh, in the city area as opposed to the, the park. Yes, and the city was concerned about safety, and it turned out they had some valid concerns. So maybe ultimately, and my view has evolved on this, maybe ultimately, maybe the judge got it wrong, but I feel as if the ACLU didn't need to pick this particular battle. And I think that even they would agree in that they have come up with a new policy. After 
basically the risks that were suggested materialized. There was a debate. A board member of the Virginia ACLU stepped down saying this is awful what happened. You know, we need to be tools for good and for the Constitution. There was kind of this public debate, and the question was, well, maybe we won't represent hate groups unless they are unarmed. Right. So aren't we will we will represent armed hate groups, uh, but we won't represent... I'm sorry, we'll rep- we will represent unarmed hate groups, but if they say they're going to be armed, we're not going to represent you in court. And do hate groups actually publicize we're an armed hate group? I don't know how this... How's I, it going to work? I think that this is a very n- unpractical line to draw. So, like, the Unite the Right guy shows up. Yeah. Okay, you're the ACLU. He's not armed. You're, you're the ACLU. Okay. Hi, yes. can, can you represent me for free? Of course, that's what we stand for. Uh, do you need to know anything? Oh, are you armed? Is uh, your group armed? Are you an armed hate group? I, not a general hate group, but are you an armed hate group? So we're a hate group, but we're the five of us who are <laughs> trying to get together. We're all unarmed. Okay, good. I can't tell you who's going to show up. Yeah, we don't, we're not sure either, but... I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. Is that going to work? Because if you have a hate rally, I even think they unite the right groups from what I've learned a little bit about that particular group they don't like the nazi groups because they think that's a like a dead movement and they don't like the kkk people because they think that they're kind of country hicks so they sort of maybe wanted to limit it to these um khaki pant wearing people with their Their polo shirts and their tiki torches they could credibly they could credibly say to the aclu we're not about that. We're about tiki torches and, and khakis. Right. And white supremacy. But when you have a hate rally, I mean, everybody comes out. Yeah, yeah. I. They had militia people who came out to protect the Unite the Right people from violence who were armed. And by that time, if that happens, then the protest has already gone forward. The ACLU is going to be like, hey, we, we withdraw. <laughs> I mean, how does this work? Do, I, are you, so do you agree with this line? Do you think that this is the line that they no, should draw? No, I don't agree. You've got to be 100%. You're either going to represent these groups or you're not. You can't be come up with this false sort of fake line to make the, the people who contribute to the organization happy. Yeah, part of me thought that, like, like, what does it mean to be a constitutional absolutist, right? Like, what does it mean to be a First Amendment like ride or die for the first amendment what does it mean and how many lines are we drawing if we're the aclu so if you're an organization whose mission is to defend the constitution and protect the rights of people period then that's that's what your group is if the aclu is no longer going to do that then i think that maybe it's well we represent peoples we defend the first amendment for everybody except for one group so and and your first amendment right i was struggling with this right because your first amendment right is the right to be, uh, the right to assemble, right, without content discrimination, yeah. the right to express yourself without restrictions from the government. That, that's what the right is, but it's not a right to be represented by the ACLU, right? You're, that's you're, a good point. But, but so, so it's like, okay, so you, you don't have a right to be represented by the ACLU, but the ACLU can be kind of critically looked at if they say we're guardians of the First Amendment except when we're not. And, and just in the uh, Sixth Amendment case, you have the right to counsel. You have the right to have an attorney. You don't have the right to Kristen Carter. If, or you don't have the right to have me represent you. But if I start saying, well, I, I represent, I'll represent hate groups, but I don't represent armed ones. Right? <laughs> right. Like, like, okay, that's not what your constitutional right is not to have a particular person or like the ACLU represent you. But once they start drawing lines, there's a little bit of a conflict. They're concerned about what this is all about. We respect the Constitution, but not the Second Amendment, just the first. And, you know, but no, but I, and I was struggling with this, too, right? Because I don't like guns, right? Right. And so, but there's a, uh, there's a group, the NRA. Yeah. Right? And they exist. And they say they don't draw any distinctions or anything. It's straight up, right, to, to have weapons. And look how effective they are. Yes. The ACLU is the group you go to when there's a restriction on speech or assembly. And I think that that's a good thing for them to exist that way. They'd have to. And I don't think that they have any blame. I think they have no blame whatsoever for any of the consequences of Charlottesville 
I think that when people suggest, oh, well, we, we didn't do good in this instance, I disagree with the premise that they somehow caused anything. I think the person who caused the harm is the person who hit the, you know, who harmed the other person, yes. not the organization that represented a group's right to assemble. I still think they could have passed on this particular battle. Do you mean that like, like as a kind of effective, as to be an effective organization, to continue to have community support? Like, how do you mean? Like, I feel as if they should have taken a look at this and said, does this case truly represent our ideals? Does this case stand for what we stand for? Because there's many battles to be fought. There's many cases that the ACLU can take up, can look at. There's many people who are asking the ACLU to represent them. And there's occasionally, from time to time, a case comes along where you kind of wonder, is this really what they're all about? If they were like the Innocence Project and they were getting, you know, thousands and thousands of requests and they could only answer hundreds of those requests, then I completely agree to you with you. I'm not sure that this was that situation where, you know, like the, the request for representation came on their desk and they're like, sorry, we're too busy. I, I, I You know, or that, that some other group, right, <laughs> like lost representation. If that was true, then I'm, I'm totally with it. I think that in hindsight, we can all say, well, the gun guys who showed up definitely didn't promote free speech of the non-gun people. You know, like I think the counter protesters, like it was really complicated whose free speech rights frustrated other people's free speech rights or whatever. But I don't think you can do that on the front end. Well, I think like if they, one, the person who gets the request that's like, we want to have a protest and we want to have it downtown and the city's saying we can't do it. You know, like like it, it's it's it, of course we can look back and say like, OK, now if we tailored their our representation, we could have prevented something. But that that feels like it's it it, it, it implies a bunch about who's responsible for what that I, I don't I, I'm allergic to. I don't know. Many sides. Many sides. Many sides. That should be. That's gonna be the episode title. <laughs> no. Just so many. Reclaiming my time. Reclaim. All right. That's right. Let's reclaim our time, and move on. We're gonna talk a little bit about jury selection. Yeah. This case came up in New York. Martin Shkreli. Martin Shkreli is thought of by a lot of people. He's considered one of the most hated people in in the U.S. He's the pharma industry gremlin. He's famous for buying uh, medications for people with HIV and raising the price 5,000%. He's famous for being a jerk. He is, uh, so he was being prosecuted for securities violations. Yes. He goes to trial and he is, uh, they go through jury selection, and, and we'll post <gasps> out. Oh, go on. We'll post out the, uh, <laughs> Christine, what happened? Real time. We're talking about the Pharma Bro three hours ago. Did you hear the latest? No, no. Is this breaking oh, news? Oh, this, this is, is breaking news. Three hours ago? This is the first breaking news on Adrian Better. You're going to hate this, Avi. Tell me. Pharma Bro threatens to destroy the $2 million Wu-Tang <laughs> album that he put on eBay. Oh, no. This is, He's you know. He's so evil. Like, we're talking, okay. We, can, you, can you just explain, Kristen, the Wu-Tang okay. part of this? It's important. Seminole hip-hop group, the Wu-Tang Clan, featuring some of the greatest rappers of all time. ODB, the RZA, Ghostface, they Method just, Man. yes. They decided to put out this this record. They thought it would be really cool to produce a single cop. They hadn't put out an album for a long time, so they decided let's put out a single, let's make an album and only release one copy. And it'll be of historical significance. It'll be like a Renaissance master making one painting. And it'll be for all time talked about. And what they did is they decided to sell it for $2 million dollars. And the person who bought this single copy was contractually prohibited from sharing that record for 88 years. And if anyone knows a little bit about the deep, deep story, because one of their managers wrote a book about this, they did have an out. And there was a clause that if it was retrieved during a heist, then it could <laughs> be shared commercially or somehow Bill Murray was able to retrieve it. 
that makes I know it makes wait. No so sense. if somebody if somebody like took a it during a heist, heisted it back. So okay, I didn't I didn't know about these. <laughs> so these guys, so it's this really really. I don't think they realized how dumb this idea was, but somebody bought it, and that person was Martin Shkreli for Which, $2 million. And they didn't know he was the buyer no. during the, the sales process. No. But does it matter? It's a very strange setup. I think their plan was rotten. They didn't realize their fans would hate them because they're the ones who put this whole thing in. No, but no, but they've gotten. I think that they've gotten zero blowback. They should get relative more blowback. to Shkreli. And an old dirty bastard is dead, and I don't think he ever would agree to this. Anyway, so, so Martin bought the record. He buys the record, and, and now he's threatening to destroy well, it. Well, he's been trolling them for many years. He threatened to release it to the public if Trump won for president. Yeah. He threatened, or he invited. He said that he would play this record for Taylor Swift. If she would have sex with him. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm not. This is part of the lore of this, this I, album. I feel and like. the truth behind it. I feel like by giving us these details, you're capturing why he's so hated. I didn't even know that about him. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole backstory. So Shkreli is put on trial during jury selection. Or, I mean, jurors are saying things that reflect their hatred of him during jury selection. It was something like I'd never seen before. It was almost like if you had made it up. I, I wouldn't believe it. They're saying, I, you know, my, my family members are, are suffering from cancer. They're paying thousands of dollars a month. And that evil man is responsible. And then the judge is like, well, you know, this isn't a price gouging case. And they're saying in response, well, he's, uh, he's guilty anyway. Or you wouldn't want me on the jury. The only question I would have is, which prison should he go to? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, if... I, I read it and it was just like a strange experience of reading what these jurors were saying in a in a criminal case because it was just like so much testing the limits. Uh, part of me was like just very much disturbed by, you know, the willingness of jurors to say that they're not going to abide by the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof like the, that it just none of it matters in an individual case. But I'm I'm glad that they said it. Yes. I it, I don't like that people have such strong feelings that they aren't able to be jurors. But if they aren't able to be jurors, we need to know it, right? We have to know it. We do. It's, it's, it's the most important thing. That's what you're there to do. I always think it's more important to tell the truth during jury duty than uh, jury selection than to any other part. We get people who lie or feel like they have to hold things back or they're too ashamed or embarrassed or they don't want to say or they have other motives for saying things that aren't true. And I applaud anybody who, who simply tells the truth, even if it's you know, offensive or unappealing. And there's an instinct that you can have when you're starting a trial where people start saying bad things about your client and you want to be like, you don't know the whole story. You, know, you don't know anything yet. Like, he's a really good dude. And that's not the most productive thing no. because then you're signaling to people that they shouldn't actually tell you what they think. No, and you've, you need to clear those people out. And studies have shown that if I have a passionate opinion about one thing, that's not going to affect the guy sitting next to me. We all come to the table with our views and our impressions and our, our thoughts. And so if I come in to the jury and say, I can't be fair in this dog case, that doesn't mean the guy next to me is going to be so influenced by what I said that he's going to share that same feeling or, or it's not going to ruin your case you're better off getting all the truthful answers you can right up front i i have some concern when somebody says something awful and they should be removed from the jury and then they're not yeah you know like yeah. that that there's some suggestion that you know you can say i'm i'm not going to be fair uh because the person looks a certain way or uh, because he's not going, you know, he, there's a possibility that he might not testify or that because he's represented by a public defender or because he has an interpreter, right. you know, I'm questioning. Like if somebody's going to say those things and we try to remove them from the jury or, you know, by the same token, if a prosecutor develops some question where the guy says, oh, I don't trust any police officer ever or whatever. And then the judge is like, oh, yeah. You can put that aside, can't you? You, you can put right? it aside. So yes, far, so can. good. Sure. Well, it signals something when that person gets to stay on if they're able to. It sends a bad signal. Like, I think, like, you should be able to be fully honest, but then 
not be on the jury. That's why I think it's very important when you're questioning jurors to encourage them to share their, let's say, for instance, an example you used as a police officer. So they say, I can't be fair because I don't like cops, right? And I, I go into it. I, I, I ask them several questions, and I say, there's nothing that anyone else could do to change your mind. You feel strongly about that, right? And so you have to get those people with their true feelings to be cemented into that feeling. So later when the judge comes back and says, but you can put that aside, it's, it's too late at that point. You talked about the study where if I talk about what my views are on some subject and I'm sitting next to somebody, that's not going to change what they think. Yeah. But I do worry, like in the Shkreli case, about the volume of awful <laughs> things that were said about him. Like that does it, does it, it, I think if it were ever to be able to poison the well, right, if that's right. a concept that can exist, that would be one of them. I mean, you know, the first juror, I'm just pulling up this uh, transcript. The first juror, juror number one, I'm aware of the defendant and I hate him. <laughs> That's the first thing out of the gate. I don't think you'd want me on the jury. Well, we want to know that, right? right. But let's say you ha- don't know who he is. And there's all these people who are like, I hate that guy. <laughs> I just want to know what prison he's going to. You know, that's the only thing I care about. So the last juror that's in this in this transcript is juror 59. Your Honor... Totally, he is guilty, and in no way can I let him slide out of anything because, and the judge's like, stop, you know. <laughs> is that your attitude toward anyone, right? Because, I mean, obviously, like, nobody holds this view for everybody, right, that you're guilty until proven innocent. And he says, it's my attitude towards his entire demeanor, what he's done to people. The jury, the judge says, okay, you're excused. And then juror 59 on the way out says, and you disrespected the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> I mean, that was almost, you know, I mean, classic. It's so crazy. That That's that my new happen. catchphrase, I think. Maybe that should be the name of this episode. <laughs> Respecting the Wu-Tang Clan. Yes. And now with this, this breaking news. Oh, yeah. I hope that he doesn't destroy the album. I'm sad that we're in a state of affairs where this guy decides what happens to the Wu-Tang. Is he allowed to destroy it? I'd imagine he could do whatever he wants. But don't you think that the Wu-Tang would just have some other copy of it somewhere? They seem like One they, might, they might somewhere deep in the vault. Yeah, or they could just perform it again. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. It's, part of this Screlly thing felt like jurors, juror number one goes and he says all these awful things. Juror number one. Yeah. And then he's, he gets to walk out. And so, you know, if you see, if you don't want to be doing jury duty and all you have to do is trash this awful person in front of a group of other people. I think that's so out. unfair. And I've seen people do that. I've listened to people in conversations say, hey, if you want to get out of jury duty, just say you're racist. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that will, you will... Uh, you will demean yourself exactly. in a way that is, I think, not not worth not worth it. I, I mean, so yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So the subject is then, if you're willing to say I'm, I can't be fair because the client's white or minority or whatever, whatever it is, whatever you know, you you identify the defendant by their race, and then you say I can't be fair because of their race, right? But you don't mean it. Right. There's a difference between those who mean it and are just sharing their feelings and they really truly are doing us all a favor. So I encourage those people to speak up. And and they should be able to speak up without judgment. Exactly. In, during jury selection. No, you know? I always give them, you know, props for that. There's something uniquely awful about <laughs> saying I'm prejudiced against the person because of their race and I think they're more likely to be guilty in order to get out of jury duty. Yeah. It's not just that it's demeaning to you. It also advances an ugly lie, right? It's not just that it's a lie, but it, it, it puts so much ugliness out into the jury room or into the deliberation box. Like, why put out yeah. why put out ideas like that that could, you know, that, that are false, right? I mean, if, you, if you're doing, if you're lying about it, it, it's, so part of the Shkreli thing could be, you know, you see juror number one walk out. And so then what's the worst thing that I could say about this dude in order to get out of jury duty? Maybe. Right. But it feels very true. <laughs> the people, you know, when they say he disrespected the Wu-Tang, I think that's a very honest. Uh, the guy who says, I can't stand this guy. 
I don't think he was fronting. No, he wasn't fronting. And it's kind of a righteous attitude. Yeah. Anyway. Um, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. And don't lie about stuff. Right? Like, just don't lie about stuff. Yeah, don't lie. You know. Those who talk, walk. It'll, it'll, and you know what? If you start lying, it's going to boomerang against you. If your goal is to get off jury duty and you're lying somehow, you're going to end up staying on the jury. Or the universe will punish you in some way. <laughs> uh, let's reclaim our time. All right. And talk about President Trump's pardon of Joe uh. Arpaio. What do you think about this when this happened? What do you think I thought, Avi? Did you know about Joe Arpaio? Like, how much do you know I've about him I've known a lot. I've been following Joe Arpaio for many, many years from his jails. And he is a famous law enforcement person. I always think if you're a famous sheriff, you're probably a bad sheriff. Because the other famous sheriffs I think about are Bull Connor and maybe that Sheriff David Clark. I yeah. don't know any good really naturally known good sheriffs. So Joe Arpaio, I've known about him since, you know, when was he, like the eight nineties? So yeah, the, he's, the pink yeah. underwear, how America has actually like sort of changed its view, I think on Joe Arpaio. I think in the beginning people thought, oh, this law and order guy with making prisoners wear pink underwear. Yeah, he makes them sleep in tents, yeah, outdoor tents. outdoor tents. But see, I think initially yeah. the press didn't, report on the fact that people were dying yeah. in his jails people were being brutally mistreated and how ugly his jails were and how racist he is and how he shackled women during labor yeah how he you know if you're a man he when you show up there they shave your head and i think another thing that the public didn't generally understand is this is not a prison he ran jails and you know who's in jails people who are accused of haven't been convicted yeah. or people who've been convicted of driving on a suspended license possession of a small amount of drugs these are the people that he was uh, basically torturing in that torture dungeon of his his jails he had these excuses oh we put people in pink underwear because they don't steal the pink underwear you know where the uh, whereas they were stealing the white underwear or whatever but it was all about some sort of some sort of in his view let's emasculate the people right. you know because that's then negative on them and it went beyond that if you needed medical treatment you had to pay for it yeah and he would serve this he served food that he's described as worse than what he serves his dogs while showing on television the cook the food network or you know some cooking shows so it's basically I mean, when I listen to all the things he, he does and his justifications, like there's part of me thinks about how awful it is and inhumane. And part of me, just like the takeaway is this like, he's such a dick. Like, it's just all about just being a dick. Like, I'm going to I'm going to torture these people right. in ways that are just because because I'm an asshole. Like, I'm going to show them the weather channel so they look at Canada while it's 110 degrees part of it is is just deeply harming people as they're in 110 degrees to show them snow but part of it is just him being an asshole like what would be the dickish thing the most dickish thing i could do to these people you know that i mean i don't yeah, know that's kind yeah. of crude but it's just like so much of him as jailer right the he's a, yeah he's a dick he's a racist yeah and he cost their county millions and millions and millions of dollars in lawsuits and he didn't investigate like his sheriffs weren't investigating uh, child molests and rapes. Instead, he sent them to Hawaii to investigate oh, the birth certificate. <laughs> birth certificate. Yeah. The thing about his racism is he believed that, or he stated that he was going to enforce federal immigration law. Yeah. And the way that he would do that was by taking people who he suspected of not being in the United States legally. Yeah, driving their and car. Taking them and yeah. dumping them at, at immigration facilities yeah. if if the federal immigration official would take them. Yeah. There's certain uh, authorizations you can have to be like a local immigration enforcer, which his department had and then lost. And so that wasn't even in his like kind of mission, you know, that, that wasn't authorized and he would do it. And so we've talked about this, Saj and I have talked about this on prior episodes. When you have fear of police, 
when you don't want to connect and talk to police, that is bad for society. Like it's bad for society if somebody's being a victim of a crime and they cannot call the police because the police will turn the investigation instead of about a crime on you. The harm to kind of the social fabric is is just it, it has to just be stated that he is he's caused so much so much cruelty and and harm right and and then he gets a pardon yeah that was uh, you know trump hinted at well we know that joe arpaio was a big trump supporter uh, on the campaign trail and we know his role in in the birther movement but when trump pardoned joe arpaio people say he sent a message to his his cronies like uh, Michael Flynn and the people who are covering up for him um, in the Comey investigation that don't worry if you're a friend of mine you'll get pardoned so don't worry but I think the bigger message he sent was to people of color that it doesn't matter what someone does it law enforcement abuse uh, doesn't matter I've I've got their back. When he gave that speech in New York about yeah. uh, when you when you put him in the police car, just you know, don't try too hard hard to protect their head. Yeah, and he said a bunch of a other super offensive things that didn't really get covered by the press about law enforcement's treatment of our clients and and of, yeah. of people in color in general. And when he does that, what he's done on almost everything that Obama has, has, has tried to do. And when he pardons Joe Arpaio, without Joe Arpaio even being sentenced, I mean, what was going to happen to this 85-year-old guy anyway? He wasn't going to jail. He faced six, he faced six months of incarceration. But right, that just like happen. a first offense DUI driver does. But what do they really get? They get, you know, three days of work release. Nobody was going to put Joe Arpaio in jail, even even though he violated this federal law. But he didn't even get sentenced, and he didn't even show any remorse or He's, evidence of yeah. rehabilitation. He just said, but, we got, I got you, Joe. But that would never be a factor for Trump, you know, like showing of remorse. <laughs> like sh- if he showed remorse, it would have been like, Trump would have been like, all right, no pardon for you. <laughs> like his views about the bias of the judge and the, you know, the fact that he didn't get a fair shake was very much like uh, Trump's talk about Judge Curiel. Yeah. You know, just it was it's all reduced to some basic bullshit, you know, about about yeah. how you didn't get a fair shake and the, the judiciary's rigged or whatever. I just feel like the one-two punch of his response to Charlottesville and then pardoning Arpaio just really said something. Not something that we didn't know already, really. But it did say something about how he intends to proceed in the future. What kind of what kind of person he is? Uh, and I mean, well, we, we know what yeah, kind of person he but is. But like, like he shows it every day, <laughs> right? Uh, he he rem- he reminds us. But he has no respect for the law. He has no respect for the judiciary branch at all, whatsoever. And I mean, we should just talk briefly about what Joe Arpaio got pardoned for, because exactly. I think there's like, you know, there's many things about Joe Arpaio that are true, and uh, he is this awful jailer he's this racist policer we've talked about that but what he did was his he had his police department taking people into custody on suspicion or knowledge of not being in the united states legally and without committing a different crime like a violation of arizona law and uh so what the the federal court said is you can't do that and they issued a preliminary injunction, which is a court order saying you can't do that. And then they issued a permanent injunction, which said you can't do it. And he went through the appeals process. Like there yes. was his legal team was arguing that that he should be able to do whatever he wants. And he lost. Yeah, he wasn't confused. He did not know quite what the issue was. He knew exactly what he was not supposed to do. It, it couldn't be clear. At the same time, he's publicly pronouncing that he's going to do it, that he's going to violate the court order, yes. that he's going to keep nothing changes. And then the last piece, so you've got like a court saying you can't do something that's obviously communicated to him. You have him stating that he's not going to comply. And then you have his department dumping a bunch of people into federal immigration facilities who are not charged with any crimes. 
you know, so you could look at all the people who have been charged with crimes who also are then connected to some federal immigration drop-off. But then these folks don't have any crime. So, I mean, it's just basically, you told me I can't do something, I'm going to do it anyway, and then doing it. Right. That's what he did. That's that's and the that's, that's what he's held in contempt for. by our president. The president has the power to pardon. I wish that more people who are held in uh, federal prisons for drug offenses would get pardoned and released and be able to move on with their lives. It just reminds me of what the vetting process was for all of the people who Barack Obama pardoned, especially in the in the last. They had to be perfect. Yes, they had to be perfect. There was so much of a process and i can't imagine what he did here and how he got away (laughs) well i mean there's no question that this isn't going to establish a precedent for treatment of other folks like you know this isn't going to the pardoning process isn't going to be opened up for people of color serving life sentences for drug offenses right it's it's just for his pal it's for reasons that are garbage So let's move on. Let's reclaim our our Taylor Swift time. Look what you made me do, Kristen. Taylor Swift is a big pop star, as we all know. And part of the job of being a big pop star is to go around to radio stations and do promotion. So Taylor Swift went to a radio station to promote, I guess, her CD at some point. And at the end of that promotion or that segment, you take pictures with people. And Taylor Swift says that, what happened or or the uh, a dj who was with her uh, took a picture with taylor swift she was in the middle the dj's girlfriend was on one end and the dj was on the other end and they're all with their arms around each other smiling for the camera and taylor swift alleged that this guy during that process grabbed her ass literally she said he grabbed my ass he was wearing a skirt guy said denied grabbing taylor swift's ass and taylor swift Uh, complained about this gentleman to his boss, and he was fired. And so this alleged ass-grabber sued Taylor Swift for losing his job. He sued for about $3 million. He sued Taylor for $3 million? Yeah, $3 million. I think he also sued Taylor Swift's mother for slander or something like that as well. Some conspiracy to get get him terminated. So Taylor said, you know what? You sue me, I'll sue you. So she countersued this joker for a dollar. One dollar, nominal damages. One dollar. And what by doing that, what she did is she put it to the jury to decide not only, so the burden was then on her to prove that it was more likely or not, than not yes. that he committed the, the grabbing. Yes, this was not a criminal case where it was guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It was a civil case. So it's like, I'm suing you. You're going to sue me. I'm going to sue you. But you want $3 million? I want a dollar. Right. And I'm going to prevail in this lawsuit. And she did. She prevailed, yeah. So his um, his claim was dismissed. It didn't make it to the jury. No. Uh, because he didn't draw enough of a connection between his termination and any action yeah, by her. Yeah, and he had some shaky, shaky evidence. There's this photo that was taken. And you look at the photo it looks like there's something weird going on because she's like... Really? Did you analyze the photo? Did I, you look at it? I, I looked at the photo. It's. I mean, you can't tell. There's nothing about like the dress that looks off, but she's like as far away as you could be from the DJ while still being in the photo. Right. You can never know, though. Like A photo is like one still capture. So the people who were suing her, like the DJ's <laughs> lawyer, put the photo up, right? And the, the in the opening, and the whole point of it was this photo doesn't show the groping i looked at the photo and it was like this seems it seems like there's something weird going on here and a photo doesn't capture an entire moment you know it doesn't mean that the groping happened during or you know the alleged groping the whole universe of contact was in that one still frame and then the other thing that was kind of interesting about this case that i wanted to talk about was just uh taylor's testimony and how kind of interesting it was yeah i heard she was pretty slick on the stand so i just read some excerpts but she's getting uh examined by the DJ's lawyer, you didn't take it out on your bodyguard or whatever. You you didn't fire him or whatever. And she said something like, "Well, I blamed, I blamed your client for grabbing my ass." And then they said, "Well, you didn't see his hand." And she says, "I'm like, well, that's because your ass is on the back of you, and your <laughs> eyes are on the front of you." And I don't know. I I mean, I thought that she did a really uh, great job testifying. I think right. that you know, because she's. You, she's- 
you're the image of Taylor Swift is an innocent, young, maybe perhaps victim, but songwriter, songwriter. But on the stand, and maybe in real life, right. she's definitely yeah. not helpless. I, I thought it was really cool to see uh, this all litigated in a civil case as opposed to a criminal case. Like yeah. disputes can be settled in various types of courtrooms. Uh, lawsuits can be one place to settle disputes. She was vindicated. You know, she had this meaningful process where she got to assert that the fact that she was groped doesn't mean that she did anything wrong. And uh, the timing was incredible because we were talking about her right before her record came out. Oh, the, yeah, the timing of the trial. And actually, yeah. in the in one of her music videos uh, for "Look What You Made Me Do," uh, she's in a bath. See? She's in a bathtub of diamonds. And there's a $1 bill. <laughs> and so people are like, oh, she put the dollar in to let people know, you know, that yeah. she's got she's got her dollar. I high five her for pulling that move, counter suing for a dollar. Good. If this guy grabbed her ass, then I think that she did a great job. And I hope that she donates this money. At the same time, I do have a little criticism of Taylor Swift. Speak on That doesn't have anything to do with her music. I think... All artists don't need to be political. Yes, I agree. I agree, right? At the same time, Taylor Swift promotes herself as being this pro-woman, girl squad, female empowerment, don't let men ruin your life type persona. And while she was on tour with this whole thing, the election was going on. Yeah. And... If you saw people like Katy Perry, who's a similar level, pop star, Miley Cyrus, Beyonce, all of those women came out and supported Hillary Clinton or at least came out opposing Donald Trump. And I feel like Taylor Swift's silence in this age of Trump was disappointing. It's interesting because her, her lawsuit you know, it, it, she didn't talk about Trump, but you have a, a groper or, you know, someone, an admitted, yeah. an admitted groper, a person in his own words who grabs women. And so her suit is kind of against that without referencing, right? You know, right. It, it's a valuable thing to have. Uh, but she was silent where other folks weren't. And it seemed like it was on the, the old saying, Republicans buy sneakers too, right? The if you offend the least amount of people, if you don't say anything about subjects, then that's a good thing for, you know, your brand uh, right. or whatever. Right, and it's time for people to not have their brand be the most important thing. She's an artist. She expresses herself. She says she's a feminist. And there's a couple things that are bigger than that. And if Taylor Swift came out and just supported the Democrat. Or, I, or, or actively opposed Or actively Trump. opposed Trump. I think she would have done herself and all of us a favor. If she took her creative energy and took it off of whatever, you know, this this most recent song is just like about every single possible reference to her <laughs> and how like the video is just about how all the ways in which she's been slighted, you know, like yeah. or, or, or detracted from. If she took that creativity and that energy and put it towards things that actually matter in the world, uh, not like how she's getting dissed by Kanye, but... How Who, she, whose political views, unfortunately, we did get. A we, taste yeah, we of. heard we heard a lot from him, and and, and you know, I but, was at the yeah. concert where he said, "I didn't vote, but if I would have voted, I would have voted for Donald Trump," and I walked out. And then and then that was right before uh, his Sacramento concert, which went, which everybody got refunds yeah, for. Yeah, I didn't get a refund. And then he had his breakdown. So at least we can attribute that to a mental health breakdown. But Taylor's silence. It's not defendable. No, I, I, I don't disagree with you. All right. I think we've, we've covered a ton of stuff in today's episode. Krista, thank you so much for, uh, for talking on Eight and a Better. It's been so fun. Will you come back one day? One day? Anytime? Sure. The mic is open. Or I'm going to bring Sajid in. I, w- I want to see you and Sajid. That would be fun. I love Sajid. Where is Sajid? Sajid is on a pilgrimage. He uh, went to Mecca. I know. I can't wait to hear about it. Me neither. I think he's... Uh, I, so he, I'm excited to see him, like just see him in person. I just haven't seen him for a while. I know. I miss him. So we miss you, Sajid. So, um, why don't we do, uh, why don't we do our things? (gasps) Oh yeah. (laughs) 
my thing is this. Thumbs up or raise a glass to the Salt Lake City nurse who was confronted by an angry detective who demanded that she do a blood draw on one of her patients, even though it was in violation of the hospital policy. Uh, what happened was in Salt Lake City, there had been a terrible car crash involving a police chase in which the, uh, let's say the, uh, I guess the potential defendant uh, was uh, driving in at excessive speeds. The police were chasing him. He crashed his car into a truck. Now, the guy driving the car died. The guy in the truck suffered uh, terrible burns and was in a coma and was in intensive care, I believe, at this hospital in Salt Lake City. Uh, they were taking care of him, and this rotten detective bursts in and demands that the nurse allow him to or conduct an immediate blood draw. The nurse said, I'm sorry, sir, very politely, but we have policy which says you cannot do a blood draw unless the individual's under arrest, he consents, or you have an order from a judge. Those are our rules. And the cop said, uh, no, I'm, you better do what I want. I'm a detective here, and I'm going to arrest you. Or he arrested this poor woman who stood her ground in the face of authority to do the right thing. She was taken away, handcuffed, thrown in the back of a police car, but she still refused. I think I thought that video was going around and he really looks like he lost his cool. Like he was not acting as a person who was in control of the situation. He was totally out of control. Yeah, and that's unfortunately probably not the most uncommon thing. And here here to body cameras. Yeah. So we could actually I don't know. Was it a body camera or was it hospital footage? I think they looked like they were at like chest height. I don't that know. officer no. has since been fired. Oh, he has? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so my thing is actually something that you, it's actually your thing. You gave it to me oh. and I wanted to put it out. So we've been saying a bunch of stuff about reclaiming my time <laughs> on today's episode. And there's this wonderful thing that I'm going to recommend to uh, the Ader Nation. It's a, a, a exchange and between Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and yes. Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters. They, what is her nickname? Auntie. Auntie. So he's filibustering, basically. She's asking him a question, and instead of answering the question, he starts talking about how much he loves being in California because she represents California. And instead of, like, taking his bs time wasting she says i'm reclaiming my time uh, which is some rule that says if somebody's gonna speak on your time you can take it back it's like a congressional rule that i had never heard of and she says i'm reclaiming my time i'm reclaiming my time and when he tries to filibuster more and not answer her question she immediately reclaims her time and takes full control and it was just wonderful to see her not get pushed around you we've watched so many congressional hearings where like Jeff Sessions just talks for, you know, he takes all of the senator's time. And here's a, a, a congressional hearing where someone's trying to do the exact same trick. Right. And she's not taking it. Yeah. And she and the chair, who's a Republican, has no no choice but to honor her knowledge and use of the rules. And uh, so I am I my thing is about reclaiming your time. Reclaim your time in your lives and also watch a YouTube video that we'll put out of this singer. He's got a beautiful voice and he made a song around her act of reclaiming her time. And he, and he, he actually takes moments like you want to talk to me about California, I'm but I'm reclaiming my time. my time. And so I am just, uh, I, I'm, that's my thing. And I like that thing. I hope you all watch Wait, it. Could I have one more thing? Yeah. Yeah. Take another. You I get two things. Thing. You're, you, uh, friend of the Ader Nation. Thank you. you. I want to recommend a book called Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. We all know Trevor Noah is the Comedy Central host of The Daily Show, but you really don't know Trevor Noah until you read this book. And I recommend you actually listen to the audio uh, version of this book, this audio book, because Trevor Noah narrates it. 
and it's about his youth in South Africa. He grew up during apartheid as a, a child of a white father and a black mother, and he grew up um, in a very, very uh, poor conditions in, in Soweto, and it's charming, hilarious, you will bust out laughing, and it really gives you some insight into how uh, brilliant this guy is and how wonderful Trevor Noah is. And it's a fantastic book about the history of apartheid with a huge dose of humor.